Hello, I am the host of Shifting Culture, Joshua Johnson. I just want to come on before the episode and tell you all thank you for listening. Did you know that big things are coming for Shifting Culture and you can be a part of it? We have just launched a Patreon. When you become a monthly patron to the show, you will get our episode ad-free, get early access to episodes, be able to download episode guides, and get bonus shows. Go to patreon.com slash shifting culture to support all that we are doing. Your support means that we can continue to help the body of Christ look more like Jesus. Again, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture. Thank you so much. Now, on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Shifting Culture Podcast, in which we have conversations about the culture we create and the impact we can make. I'm your host, Joshua Johnson. Go to shiftingculturepodcast.com to interact or donate. Previous guests on the show have included John Arndt, Peter Farmer, and Neil Cole. You could go back and listen to those episodes and more. But today's guest is Michael Carrion. Michael serves as the Senior Pastor and General Overseer of the Promised Land Covenant Churches located in the North and South Bronx. He also serves as the Founding Chairman and Superintendent of the Bronx Academy of Promise K-8 Charter School. As the VP of Church Planting and Leadership Development at City to City, Michael oversees the New York City team prayerfully and discerningly recruiting, training, and resourcing church planters called to plant healthy missional churches in the five boroughs of New York City. I loved her conversation about what it takes to love and empower and serve the people living and working among us. So here's my conversation with Michael Carrion. Michael, welcome. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me, Josh. Thank you. Yeah. You know, when I think of you, I think of uh, going after the the marginalized, uh, the neglected, and really empowering people on the margin. Where did that impetus in you and your life, where did that come from? What does that stem from in you? Mm, that's a good question. Uh, honestly, it came from uh, my background, my family of origin. I grew up in a very impoverished community and context. I grew up in Spanish Harlem in New York City. Mm-hmm. And, you know, both my parents were drug users, heroin addicts. Mm. And uh, at one point, whole family was homeless. And we were in uh, staircases and shelters and mm. and a lot of places where you shouldn't have small children. Yeah. Shooting galleries used to be the term in the 60s and 70s of a place where they shot heroin. And um, I grew up in those places. And uh, by God's grace and to God be the glory, um, it scarred me mm-hmm. in a way where uh, I didn't just get damaged from it, but I wanted to prevent that damage from happening from others. Mm-hmm. So in the pathway and the origin of God, uh, his, his sovereignty in my life, yeah. pulling yeah. me out of that is really where that comes from. Mm-hmm. I always remember being hungry. I always remember, especially on the coldest nights, uh, Joshua, the yeah. coldest always bring me back to staircases with my mother pregnant, my father, my little sister. And it's, uh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that pr- provides a lot of empathy uh, oh, yeah. for others. Um, so how did, how did God bring you through that into a place where you found some hope in him? 
you know, I was following down the same path of addiction and brokenness. And I had a friend, uh, David Velasquez, I can say his name, he's retired detective now from the NYPD. Um, he, he, we grew up together in the, in the projects we were living in, uh, initially housing. And, um, you know, one day he just walked up to me. I was about 17 years old. I was strung out. And he says, Mike, I'm not going to leave you on the street to die. I'm going to arrest you or I'm going to take you into this program. And he took me into a program called Teen Challenge. Mm-hmm. Started by David Wilkerson and, uh, and the, Nikki Cruz is still alive, preaching and, and evangelizing across the, the globe. And so I went to the Teen Challenge. And on the first night that I was in Teen Challenge in Bridgeport, Connecticut, uh, at a pivot house, they took me to a, a, a service in New Haven, Connecticut, where Nikki Cruz was preaching. Mm-hmm. There was about 2,000 people there. I mean, this was a huge church. And he's going in. And I'm going to tell you, his accent is so strong in Spanish. Yeah. That you don't understand what he's saying in English. <laughs> you know what I mean? He just yeah. has a real strong accent. But, you know, Josh, when he got to the altar call, and, you know, this is a charismatic context, you know, somebody's a God. When he got to that proclamation at the end, if anyone is just tired and broken mm-hmm. and, would, and would seek the face of God and would, and would respond to the call of salvation, you know, I don't know how, but I wound up from the back of the church and the front of the church. Wow. And, um, and, and, and I just surrendered. And I, I said this real simple prayer. I said, if you're real, if you are real, God, then, then please have mercy on me. And um, that was it. Wow. After everything changed. <laughs> After that night, everything in my life changed. We went back to the program and I was hardheaded and they dealt with me. And, and uh, but I graduated and uh, uh, stood there longer than I should have because uh, I wasn't ready to come back to New York City. Uh, but I got. <laughs> You know, I got my education there. The Assemblies of God was so good to me uh, and loving me, uh, addressing me, growing me up. Uh, and they used an interdisciplinary approach. It wasn't just a theocentric program. There was clinical, and this is before clinical, uh, Christian clinical theory was really being appro- appropriated within a ministry context or in counseling services. They were doing it from the hip in Mearsburg, Pennsylvania, before I believe it was a classification of an actual theo. Uh, you know, combined discipline, you know, so that to me was, that was really the key because I was able to process pain, talk about pain and then surrender pain, process, talk about a process and surrender. That's what really, and then afterwards they started, they stuck me in the library. I was literally the librarian for 600 (laughs) men and I think 25 pastors. And in that library, I, I just, I got lost in the books and the commentaries and the lexicons and, and, so that was it. That was it. And then afterwards, I graduated uh, top five, top ten. Um, I mean, academic honor roll. I had five internships. One of them to Italy. My wife was not trying to go to Italy. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> we, were from, we were from the barrio of, of Spanish. Uh, but somebody's got in Italy had started a team challenge, and I was on the roster for that uh, invitation. And in Rochester and in Camden, New Jersey, my brother's keeper, which is very well known in our region. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, but I had to go home. I had two small boys uh, I had to raise. And, um, and then I went home, I went home. And uh, that's when ministry really started. Cause then I wound up in a church and in that church, I just started, you know, to serve God, not from a programmatic uh, perspective, but as a congregant and as a disciple. And that church's name was uh, the glory of Christ church out of uh, Concilio, Latino, Concilio Latino Americano, which is a Latin American council of churches 
which is one of the largest movements in the New York region over the last probably 50 years. Uh, conservative charismatics, uh, conservative Pentecostals, if you will. And so, uh, and there I served there 12 years, started church planting in Guatemala, Central America. I started doing teaching, opening up schools and orphanages. They taught me how to do that in ministry. And, and then those skills that, um, that I was uh, exposed to and those mission trips really laid the foundational framework of how I would unpack later uh, and, 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 and when the Lord sent me out to start ministry um, or how I would start charter schools and then now a high school and then other church plants. So, yeah, from there, it was really a good formation for me. Yeah. So what does it look like for you as, you know, going uh, to Guatemala, doing missions trips and then coming back into into New York? Um, is there really a difference Um out in somewhere like in rural Guatemala or in this major city and in the, you know, in New York, in the Bronx, like, is there much? Central America is, is a totally different world. I mean, and I'm talking almost 30 years ago when I was there, uh, it was a total traumatic experience (laughs) coming from, you know, you know, uh, the, the U S where we have things given to us freely. I mean, we have access to so much resource. You go to a, uh, and I don't like using the word, this is this inappropriate, uh, but a, a context that's outside the United States that doesn't have a, a, a formal, formalized, healthy government. Um, uh, and, and you will see things that you've never seen before. I thought I knew what poverty was until I went to Guatemala. And then we went to Antigua, but we went to three different county, three different um, communities, and literally children living in a garbage dump, living in, in, in a cave. And, and these people are loving on you. You're coming in, they're looking at you like, oh, let me feed you. Let me take care of you. Let me, you know, no, we can't help you, you know, but it, the world was different. The economic, the economic disparities were so, I was like, we are so spoiled in the United States. We are so, we are so spoiled. We are silver spoon fed and we don't even yeah. realize it. Uh, anyway, yeah. so a lot of, a lot of children were fed while we were there. Uh, we, we did um, uh, campaigns, evangelistic campaigns. Uh, we served the poor, um, uh, you know, started a, an orphanage for the kids because there was hundreds of kids living in this with no parents, right? Yeah. And we started this orphanage. Then we started a council of churches over there. And then we started a school. And so all of that, all of that. And then I come back to the States. I mean, literally that, it, that changed my praise. That changed my hallelujah. It changed my theology. It changed the way my worldview uh, really was impacted by that experience. Um, and then I went over there and I was trying to get back, you know, go back and forward, but, uh, you know, different different political items. They had civil war break out over there back then, and it was dangerous. Literally, that's the other thing. You know, we walk and we, we go to the stores, not a problem. In those countries, there's a civil war. You could die going to church, you know, uh, and the guerrilla, the guerrilla warfare has even confronted the church. Uh, and and the poverty was of, of a level I had never seen. So yeah, a lot of suffering, a lot so, of suffering. You know, if you're you're looking at your 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 time there, and and then you're looking at your time in, in New York, where there are a lot more resources available, but maybe people don't want to receive those resources. How does that change your perspective? In you know, and how did help people deal with their pain and their problems um, and point them to hope in New York? 
Well, you know, I'll tell you, I, you're right. And, you, and that's a great, great uh, observation. The socialization of the indigenous in New York City is as such that they don't, they're not trained. They don't, they don't know what it is to lean into a resource. And I say yeah. this as a native New Yorker. I'm not talking bad about the city. I live, it's my city. You know what I mean? Yeah. I can say this. My people uh, will grow up in generational uh, poverty. And what they accept as the norm is the poverty. And because they've never seen uh, financial solvency or healthy balanced uh, diet or healthy uh, resource, they're, they're just not educated enough to reach out for it. Unless there is a shifting and an interruption to the poverty, to the mindset, to that socialization, people won't look for help because they're born into a system. In other words, you don't know you're a slave until you've tasted and seen freedom. You understand what I'm saying? You don't know that you're a slave to something until you see the abstract of that thing you're a part of. And so how did that change my preaching, teaching, and evangelistic efforts? I started telling people, you know, you've got to take the mask off and the scales off from your eyes because you've been given so much, uh, yet you settle for, 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 for nothing. Meanwhile, you know, you even, even if you just look at the the uh, immigration or the lack of comprehensive immigration law in the United States, that's the tension. These people come from the outside and take our jobs. Well, these people from the outside have a paradigm where I have to do whatever I have to do to survive, while the people yeah. who are indigenous here say, I'm going to stay on public assistance. And, yeah. you know, I've been there, I know. And they accept that as a norm uh, instead of trying to reach out. Unless there's an interruption, unless someone speaks to them and interrupts that paradigm, they can stay in a generation situation. And it's not, it's not about them pulling up their bootstraps. It's literally about a divine intervention. Unless someone go to preach, how will they know? Right? Paul says that's the rope. And so I think that um, that's the case. And I think education is that clarion call to that interruption. And so I embodied that uh, because of what I saw in Guatemala and Central America. Uh, they were not educated and didn't have access to education. In this country, you have access to education and you can, you don't have to stay in the situation that you're in, uh, you know? And so, yeah, that, that, that helped form me. And I started to see my own um, fundamental shortcomings, even in that, you know, there were certain things that I would just, well, we can't do anything about it. You no, know, yes, we can. Yes, we can. We can pray. We can, we can partner. We can collaborate. And all of our ministry efforts uh, from that reflection have prospered because of that. Because you tell me no, and I'm going to say, well, why? <laughs> you have to train our people to ask the question, why? Mm, why that's not? That's good. Why not? You know? And yeah. so, yeah. Yeah. And helping, uh, yeah, helping ask that question and asking questions, um, you know, how do we get people to be interrupters? Um, exactly. And what are these, these interrupters need what are the tools that interrupters need to impact their city? Yeah. Well, I think that they need to know what contextualization is, mm -hmm. right? Because I think that the church historically in the urban context, in the urban, especially the globalized city where, you know, your mission efforts change the minute you turn the corner right. because economics change. In a globalized city or in a, in a rural community, you go to the other side of the tracks, the narrative changes. And the church traditionally, historically, doesn't train well. It should be in our missions program. Yeah. It should be 
the foundation of all of our missiology. But unfortunately, it's not. I, I, I see that uh, we don't do well with interruption. What we do well, uh, what we not, and I don't want to say that we do well with this, but it's unfortunate, but it's true, uh, Joshua, yeah. that what we teach is more assimilation than interruption. You know, be more like what we do, come and be a part of this fold, take on our personality, take on our culture, ethos, uh, but don't be an individual. Don't think for yourself. And so um, I, I think that contextualization, understanding the socioeconomic realities and the socialization that sometimes anchors a people group into a situation or into uh, a reality. So what am I saying? If you take, and, I, and this is, I say this all the time when I'm, we're training new teachers in our charter schools or, or, or when we're hiring new faculty, I'll say this, if you take a majority culture and you take an all white faculty and you make them uh, the, the, the teaching faculty for the school, but then you, then you take the student body and you make it all other, either African-American, Mexican, Brown, Latino, Caribbean, whatever, make it all other. Inadvertently, unless there's an interrupter on that faculty, what you are doing is that you are socializing that student body to never see themselves teach, never see themselves lead. Until yeah. they see one of their own, as an example, interrupt the social pattern of being just a student and now mm -hmm. being the teacher, they won't aspire to that. They won't know that they can unless somebody on that majority culture faculty is willing to be third culture, willing to be incarnational, willing to be uh, enough of a, you can't stay here. You've got to come out of this. And that's yeah. intentional training. That is intentional training. <clears throat> you have to understand the context. You have to understand the indigenous scars. Uh, I have a favorite mentor. Uh, well, he's one of my favorite mentors, Dr. Suchan Ra. He wrote a, a book on lamentations. And, and, and Dr. Ra says this, if you listen to where the crying is in any context, you will always find Jesus. Listen mm -hmm. to where there's weeping and you will find Jesus there. But when you get there, try to learn as to why they're weeping and then be a solution to that weeping. That's contextualization and, 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 yes. and a basic formula. And so I think in order for the interrupters to be effective, understand context, understand the algorithms and the economics of a community, not just in the community, but also civically in the municipalities and the systems that, that, that govern. And then you can start. Um, and listen, let's be honest. We all are called to Babylon. And we must all learn Babylonian to be effective, right? For Yahweh to learn. But we have to first understand who Babylon is and what is the Babylonian culture. And, and so that's that's how I, I use that as an exilic uh, uh, framework to, to teach that when I'm te teaching church planters or missionaries. Yeah, that's really, really good. And, you know, I believe Jesus is good news to yes, everyone. But and he's also good news to every problem and every pain and every hurt. Um, and so we often, I think, as missionaries, you know, people, evangelists, people that want to share good news, they go to a formula and say, you know, this is the what I think is the good news before we understand the pain point, the problem yep. in front of us, yep. what people are going through, because yep. Jesus speaks individually to that situation, that problem. And there are places where we can actually um, interrupt and go into that place 
to be uh, good news for those people. Absolutely. So how do we not have good the good news of Jesus fall on deaf ears? How can, as you said, take the scales off and unveil what God is already doing and how he's already at work in their their place? You know, one one way of doing that, if you were coming into New York City and you want to be a missionary and you wanted to plant a church or do a movement, we would first say to you, we want you to live here for two years at minimum. Live among those who you want to serve. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's the, the second thing is serve, serve there. Don't try to lead there. I love Dr. Alan Hurst. She's a mentor. I've traveled with him. Uh, we've done trainings together, intensives in Cuba and the Dominican Republic, different places across the world. And I, ju- I just love him. He says, he says this to America. America, please stop creating leaders. Start, start creating servants. You don't need another leader. You need servants. If you have servants, guess what? They will, they will organically grow into leadership, which is a better pathway than producing a leader that, first of all, is insensitive, unwilling to learn, thinks they know everything, is prideful, egotistical. Train our folks to be servants, and then they will lead incarnationally mm-hmm. among the people. So, you know, we, we, really, we really need to be intentional about that because yeah. people want to come in with their prescriptions and diagnoses from across the way. And when they get there, it's a misdiagnosis. And when you have a misdiagnosis within a medical situation, somebody can get sick or somebody can die. And that's what happens. <laughs> Communities get sick and sometimes they reject the gospel altogether because we haven't done the groundwork in first knowing them and loving them and having compassion on them and then serving them. This is the second huge, huge point, Joshua. Learn, you know, Henry Blackaby says this. He says, don't ask the Holy Spirit, bless what I'm about to do. Henry Blackaby in his, in his work experiencing God says, the Holy Spirit's already working. Go find out what he's doing in a context. Don't just come in there and say, oh, I'm coming in, you know, Christ triumphant, Christus Victor, you know what I mean? Da, 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 with my guns blazing, triumphant Savior. You're not a Savior, right? Find out what the Holy Spirit's doing. And then you'll find out and you hear the lament. And then you find mm-hmm. out why they're lamenting. And then you can now, after doing life, and understanding and wearing the paint and spilling the blood in the same mud with them, now you can speak to them with integrity and be received because they know you because you spent time with them. You, you know, this is not a, a, a theocentric professor, um, but at a university, is it the University of Nebraska? Stephen Covey, the late Stephen Covey, Dr. Covey stated, uh, seek first to understand, then make yourself understood. Mm-hmm. And uh, we don't do that. Americans don't do that no. well. We want the we, quick fix. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, and we want to show what we know. Yeah. And, and this is why the Western church is in such trouble now, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. So what is uh, then for, for us, for the church, if we're too caught up in what we know and our discipleship paradigm is based around gaining more and more knowledge and less practical application of that knowledge, um, how do we reorient our discipleship so that we can be servants, we could be missional, incarnational, we could live among people, and we could be there for the long haul and not just want to say, I'm going to give you a little bit of knowledge for a quick fix, but I want to actually be here with you. I think that COVID and its affect 
especially within my context, I'm speaking mm-hmm. about myself, has so disoriented the status quo and our institutionalism within the church in the New York City that the rethinking or the remodeling of, of, of discipleship and evangelism has gone from big to micro missional. Mm-hmm. It used to be the narrative was bigger is better. Yep. That's no longer the, that's no longer the narrative. The narrative is because of social edicts, constant variance, constant adaptations needed because of a new remix of this, of, of COVID-19 uh, or Omicron or whatever it is. There's already new variants and mutations of that one, the latest. But now smaller, missional, manageable, getting to know your neighbor cohorts are, the, are, are not the preferred model, but the necessary model. Yeah. Because... Because the smoke and mirrors of our institutionalism and our ecclesiology has all been de- has all been deconstructed by yeah. by COVID. Because across, the, I think it was that statue that stated maybe across the country, what is it? 35 percent attendance is what we have as a norm now uh, because of COVID. That affects economics. That affects leadership. That affects mission. That affects mission drifting. That affects everything. What we see as a reality is that we didn't decide, we didn't do discipleship and evangelism well prior to COVID. So now, so now we produced a, a, a congregation of consumers that now that they cannot gather, right? They cannot do church and they're, they're not coming together. You're seeing them in other places. Pastors are depressed. Pastors, mm-hmm. they feel like failed leaders because what happened to my people who I married, I buried, I christened, you know, no feelings here. I get it. And so, you know, this, this, Plague has been real and it has killed millions and has killed thousands within cities. And so, but it's caused us to reorientate our discipleship. Uh, Dr. Tim Keller said this in a lecture uh, with a group of us uh, at City to City. He stated that we did a great job at, at, uh, at designing a narrative for the transplant growth in New York City. What we did a horrible job at was speaking to the indigenous, our neighbor across the street. So a lot of our churches in Center City we're comprised of people that are coming from the outside to get jobs, Midwest to New York, financial district, right? And there, these are the folks yeah. I'm talking about making two, $300,000 a year. Now the plague comes, now they go back home because they don't have roots. Their roots were there was the job. And that's not yeah. a root. The job ends, yeah. you're gone, right? And so those folks leave. We take the impact. Uh, we, the, the, the impact on the churches is so, so hard. Uh, and then now we've got to speak to who? The neighbor we walked by to get to church to open up the door for all the transfer growth. We don't have a relationship. We've got to now relearn a narrative or, or learn a narrative where we can evangelize our neighbors. We've got to speak to our neighbors. We've got to love our neighbors. We've got to meet our neighbors. We should have been doing that from the beginning. But, you know, consumerism, capitalism, name whatever ism you want to. We went with the smarter business model that blew up and inflated the church as quickly as possible. And you know, Josh, that because something gets big doesn't mean it's healthy. My body can get swollen from infection and and not because I'm getting more muscular. And I think in a lot of ways, the churches were inflated with swollen, immature consumers that didn't have roots in Jesus. So when they had access, the word didn't keep them because the word wasn't there. They were there for something else. Could have been community orientation, could have been, this is their rhythm, but that's as far as it's going to be. This is their, whatever, uh, various reasons. Ultimately, uh, we've got to reorientate our discipleship models. It's going to be more specific. It's going to take more time. It's going to be smaller. 
and it's going to be more intentional and more strategic. And I think we threw all of those words out the window in the, in, when it was pre-COVID. Pre-COVID was a different reality. And in New York, in a city like New York, Chicago, LA, because you see a group of people doesn't mean that it's a solidified, healthy church. It's not a problem to get a crowd in New York because I have four or 500 people in my congregation or on a Sunday, it doesn't mean my congregation is four or 500 members. My congregation could be 30 members and I've got 370 visitors. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And that's been the reality that we've had to wrestle with. Our visitors or the percentile was much higher than what we thought. Hmm. Yeah, and the the committed pre-COVID when we had these these mega churches, we the large congregations. Most people said, "Okay, I could drive thirty minutes to church, and I could commune with my with my church family, which is thirty minutes away. It's not part of my neighborhood. It's not where I live. It's not where I work." Um, how do we get back into neighborhood church of being church? within the sphere of where I live, um, where I interact, and how I interact with one another? So I'm with the ECC, the Evangelical Covenant Church. We are a missional movement out of the Lutheran Church of Sweden. And for us, we're missionary pastors. Mm -hmm. So wherever we start a church, we start with who's indigenous there. That's the problem. We've looked at locations and say, the Lord's calling me to start a church here without knowing what here or who here is. Yep. So now listen to the question you just asked. Great question, but that's like, uh, it's too late for that question. Yeah. When you started your project, you should have known who you were ministering to, who you were serving. And that's that's the whole point I was making earlier is that uh, how do we learn how to do that? By just doing it. Yeah. The boldness of walking up to a Muslim brother and saying, God bless you, and him respond, assalamu alaikum. Then now how do I present Christ as a good neighbor, as a Judeo-Christian, to this person that's of a different faith? Now, I, I, I'm not going to be in the, the apologetic that Tim Keller is, but I can learn how to befriend this person, yeah. understand yeah. this person, get to know who this person is. That's what evangelism is. Yep. Evangelism, and this is, what, this, is the problem, this is the problem. We think evangelism is you come in, you preach and insult everybody, then you go and you leave. <laughs> you know? <laughs> no. Evangelism is getting to know who it is that you're trying to reach. Yep. The problem is that you have, you, people, you have folks that want to be more preachers than missionaries when it comes to the gospel. They feel better at saying what they want to say versus really listening to what's being stated by the Spirit through the brokenness of communities. And yeah. we've got to go back to that first century uh, intentionality. Jesus yeah. chooses his disciples. His disciples don't choose him. What do I mean by that? We could look at the pattern. <clears throat> Culture in that time says, a disciple chooses, will you mentor me? Jesus says, you come follow me. He goes to them wherever they are, whether it's in the tax collector's box or it's in the boat where they just came back from fishing or if it was Levi sitting under the tree uh, thinking about X, Y, Z, or if it's the other guy that's up in a tree, you know? Uh, so ultimately Jesus gives us a modality of we go to where the problem is, incarnation. Jesus steps out of glory, puts on humanity, and becomes Emmanuel. I'm not trying to get teachy. I'm just saying the text gives us the framework and how to disciple, evangelize, and be an interrupter in yeah, the dark yeah. age that we're living in. 
Yeah, that's so good. I'll just give you an example from my from my life. You know, my wife and I moved to the Middle East. We moved to Jordan. We wanted to be among Arab Muslims, um, and we wanted to be uh, among Jordanians. We studied a lot uh, about Islam. We've read the Quran. We know what typically what they believe, but that actually doesn't matter because individually people believe so many different things. Same thing in the Christian world. Um, so as we moved to Jordan, we we fa- we started to hear that Syrian refugees were starting to become open to Jesus. There was some sort of a move where they're they're finding hope in Him, and so we started to visit. We found like they were open, and so we had a, a choice to make: either we stay comfortable in the ma- major city where there's Western options, or we go and move to the edge of the desert and be with the people that we want to encounter um, and help Jesus encounter them. And so we had to move, you know, to the edge of the desert to a place I didn't want to go to. Um, But and it was one of the ugliest places I've ever been, but it was the most beautiful spiritually because that's where God was moving. And I wanted to be where he was moving. And we Mm. saw incredible things happen because we wanted to join him in his work. And we moved into the neighborhood. We got to know our neighbors. um, And we said, hey, you're our people. We're here. And the biggest thing that we said, we call them salty statements, um, where people ask everyday questions. And we really point to a statement that says, I I love God. I hear him. I obey him. and so we basically said, all these Syrians said to us, so why are you here? Um, and, you know, we could have said, hey, we're doing relief work, whatever we want to say, but it didn't point to Jesus. So we just said that God gave us some of his love for the Syrian people. So we came to live and work among among you. And that's what I think being Christ-like, being Jesus is taking some of his love that he has for these people coming to live and work among the people. Um, Not saying, I want to do this project among you. It's like, I want to live and work among you. I want to be with you because Jesus loves you. Um, And yeah, it was powerful. The the incarnational moment that we had with people. Uh, So incarnation is huge and necessary and needed. And if we don't have it... um, I think our witness is diminished. Absolutely. I agree 100%. And I'm going to tell you, uh, that is a beautiful example of exactly <clears throat> different context, but the same thing that I'm saying. Yeah. We we never should have planted a project. We should have, Dr. Hirsch would say, we're planting the gospel. You and your wife planted the gospel amongst these people. Yeah. We said some of God's love for you has been given to me. So I'm here because I love you. Yeah. And that's the conversation we need to have with, 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 uh, we need to learn how to have. The problem is that so many people are pulpiteers, but once they get off the pulpit, they don't know how to do life amongst people. Yeah. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. In, in the covenant church, it's called the sacred leader. Sacred leader is great on the pulpit, great for mission, uh, proclamation. But when you get them off the pulpit or if you remove them from that context, the whole thing falls apart because it's based mm-hmm. on that one person and their personality flaws. Yeah. Pro and con. And so ultimately, there's a lot of sacred leaders in the Western church that they're pulpiteers, they're charismatic. They, they can unpack these theological constructs 
and the masses are drawn to them. They're like Pied Pipers, yeah. right? <laughs> but who are they off the pulpit? Where are they living? How are they doing life amongst their do even Do they even know their constituents? Yep. Now, it's hard because, you know, you live in a globalized city. You're going to have a big crowd if you have a, a good ministry. If you have great worship and you've got a building and you've got da-da-da, there's going to be people that, if you're giving out food, if you're, if you're clothing the naked, if yep. you're visiting yep. the poor, if you're healing the sick, there's going to be a response to that activity. But you can have that response and still not know who it is that you're among, right? Yep. If you're just yeah, that's true. Here. And we're called we're called to be more than just puppeteers. Yeah, real preaching happens in the in the sand in the in the <laughs> desert. Yeah, you don't want to be in. Yeah, because it wasn't aesthetic to the eye, but it was sure enough divine uh, and beautiful, right? Because it was God's yeah. plan. Yeah, yeah. I grew up in Seattle, so I mean, I'm looking green trees, beautiful mountains, <laughs> uh, ocean, rivers. Perfect weather all the time. <laughs> Yeah, definitely not perfect weather. Let's. I want to get into some uh, some practical of how do we help people um, process and surrender their pain in the middle of what does it look like practically to be able to do that? From what perspective? From COVID or from from life? From, or- from anything. So whether it be COVID, whether it be uh, homelessness, what whether whatever it is. Yeah, I think a practical way is just. Being able to spark, being being willing to submit and to talk, not submit as in you're lording over me, but to surrender pain. Uh, most of us are taught and conditioned to hold in pain, uh, to keep it moving and still hold the pain, but there's never a release of that. That's what gets us emotionally and psychologically sick. When there's not a release of pain, a release of insult, a release of bruising, a release of betrayal, a release of you name it. And so many people are walking around with pain from situations that they've never articulated, that they've never been set free from, that they've never been delivered from because they've never shared it, either from shame, embarrassment, or, or the conditioning of, uh, uh, don't, we don't do that. We don't talk about it. The, the first step to freedom from pain, anxiety, and fear is to announce it, to own it. Mm-hmm. And then once you've announced it, once you let it out, it can't come back in because now I've identified what's in me. Once I let it out, there is a exhale. Oh, I said it. I'm no longer a slave to it because in my mind, I'm struggling with this and nobody else knows. Now if I let somebody else know, yes, some people might judge me. Some people may call me weak, but there's going to be some people that can help me. So the first thing is confession. Talk to somebody. Say something. Walk up to say, find a healthy, if a healthy counselor. And that's, uh, to me, you know, I come from a heavy social work background. I've worked with the city of New York for several years in vocational rehabilitation services, dealing with multiple diagnoses and multiple addictions. And, and so this was part of what we did. So it was good for me for ministry because when people would walk in and have issues in the church, I could, you know, go right into a social session with them and say, hey, you know, you, you got to talk about this, be set free from this. And if it's too heavy, let's get some clinical counseling outside of pastoral care to help you get on the right track. And some people just need medication. Some people have hormonal imbalances that cause, and then, you know, I know some evangelicals don't even want to hear that. Oh, we get healing in the name of Jesus. The Lord made medicine. And if yes. you've got to take meds, take meds, because there's a reason for that. So I think a practical way is say something and, that, and say something that you can say it to someone you can trust. 
and who's willing to walk with you in your situation. Uh, people that are, are homeless, uh, in, in our context, there are various reasons uh, for people to fall into that undomiciled situation. Could be mental health issues and the age out of special needs services with clinics or hospitals or foster care uh, or, or, or group homes. It, it could be that they were uh, uh, you know, disoriented on a job. Uh, it could be that uh, you know, for various reasons, a fire will put a family in a situation of homelessness and they just need services. This is a scary statistic, scary statistic. In the system of New York, if you become homeless and you do not get the proper pathway back to restoration, within three years, you could be lost in the system for a decade, if not more. That's a statistic, a real statistic. And people are getting lost all over the country. Uh, of course, these moratoriums for rent, anxiety. How am I going to pay my rent? How am I going to pay my mortgage? All of that. And then also... We've got to do something. The church has got to own, and I say this, the entire church, universal church, has got to own that COVID-19 has created a, 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 an environment of fear and anxiety and depression and isolation and, and Zoom fatigue that we were not prepared for. And yeah. we as the church, that's, that's not a circumstantial problem. That is a theological issue that we have got to give a response to because it's the well-being of our people. It's the well-being of the beloved community. It's the well-being of the world. And in the, as the days have grown dark, the light of the church has shine the brightest. And it's unfortunate. It doesn't always shine as bright as it should for various reasons. But we've got to be a response. You know, we can't stop the, the movement. God's providential plan, we're writing this thing out. But we know that because he is God, we will get through this. Whether we're on this side of eternity or the other, we're going to get through this. Um, but ultimately, we've got to be a part of the response. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's really good. We have to be a part of the response, um, and we have to deal with these mental health issues. Um, Absolutely. We have to, to help people walk through them and know that it is a problem. It, it is totally disorienting for people. And so it is something where if we don't, engage we're going to lose so many people to this um and you know i felt i felt fear and anxiety over the u.s when i moved back i moved back from from jordan five years ago um and as soon as i moved back i already felt fear and anxiety and depression that was already over the u.s and it's just been exacerbated by covid um that it was there already you know, I think the enemy was having a heyday for a yep. long time, and then this happens, and it's it's worse. Um, yes. It's a lot worse. So this is uh, we have. It's I don't know. I just want to emphasize uh, it's emergency time. We That's have right. to engage this men mental health problem in absolutely the West. We have to own it and not run away from it. Uh, you know. I said this, or this is what we have in my parish, in our church, because I come from a social work background, we immediately went into an interdisciplinary frame, not just preaching and teaching, not just doing prayer service, not just doing Lectio, Lectio Divina, not just going to, but we brought in professional counselors to talk about grief, to talk about loss, to talk about what does it mean to be uh, domestic violence, 
What does it mean to, to uh, uh, anger that's not been addressed? And we had a whole series mm. of clinicians that were Christian wow. come in and I would give the pulpit to them or the Zoom chair to them. And they would <laughs> unpack, you know, a, a theology of, of therapy, literally, right? And so every social worker is, is in need of a social worker because we take so much toxicity, we've got to let yeah. it go. And the same thing with people. We've got to, our people carry a lot, especially if they've got children, small children, if they're in this, you know, the fear, single moms. And then in the city reality, you've got abusive landlords and slumlords that, 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 that compound on this because they have their businesses that they're trying to run. And I understand that. And the tactics are not always fair, but yeah, there's been a lot of aggression, you know, not microaggression, macro aggression that's been released. The other thing is that because of the economic tsunami, because of businesses closing, this has decimated the entry-level positions of hospitality, retail, and restaurants. Decimated that whole economic uh, uh, platform. So what happens? You've got people that are now unemployed and disoriented, right? They've been home for so long that now they've been on unemployment that pays them more than they were getting paid, what, on the job. So now they're looking at jobs that pay them less than what they're making to stay home. So now the, the, the bureaucrats are saying, how come nobody's going back to work? Well, guess what? They're making more money at home. How do we address that issue? We've got to speak to that issue. Number one. Number two is that some people don't want to leave the house because they're scared to die. Because to get on the train in New York City now is a precarious situation. This, you know, all of the homeless and mentally, uh, the mentally struggling New Yorkers that were homeless, when COVID happened, they were pushed underground. So our subways right now, Josh, oh my, worse they've been since the 60s and 70s. Worse. Stabbings, robbings, also rape. I mean, just horrible situations uh, that, that, that were not the case before. We've had our own transition with our governor, our mayor, and so on. And so we've got stuff going on. But, you know, the church also has to give a response to that as well. The well-being of the city is the church's concern. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, as I send you into exile in Babylon. But go live in that city, get married in that city, do well in that city, because as you do well in that city, the city will do well. That's in the context of exile. That's under pagan rule, right? I mean, come on. I mean, we can't, we can't, you know, we, we have this uh, selective hermeneutic sometimes that just drives me nuts. But ultimately, we've got to give a response to that as well. Uh, mental health is a serious issue uh, and it's not going to go away. We have to have the discernment to know that it's needed and we've got to move quickly with that. Yeah. My opinion. Yeah. yeah. This has been, been really rich. Uh, thank you. There's a couple questions I have here uh, at the end. One, if you could go back to your 21 year old self, what oh, advice yeah. would you give? 21 year old self. Um, my 21-year-old self? It's a good question. <laughs> I probably would have gotten into seminary earlier. <laughs> earlier. To get it done earlier. Because I lost time in, in, the, in taking classes, late yeah. night writing papers uh, with my children. <laughs> I would have gotten into seminary earlier. But I didn't have the options for that. But I would have done that, I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I, I, that's, I would also probably would have gone on more vacations. <laughs> with the younger spouse 
and not so many kids now because I have five children. <laughs> it's hard to do that now, isn't it? It's hard to do that now. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> You, yeah, even with one man, I remember when it was just me and my wife. And we could yeah. go all over the world. It was so much no, fun. Oh, we out. Yeah. <laughs> we like that more, brother. Yeah, it's yeah. good. Uh, anything you've been reading or watching lately that you could recommend? Oh, absolutely. I'm, I mean, I'm a nerd, so I just <laughs> I love Scott McKnight. Yeah, and revitalizing yeah. the church's pattern and asking God, right? Open nice. by Scott McKnight. He's a favorite. I just got New City Catechism, um, and I'm reading that, which is like Westminster, Heidelberg's guy just revisiting orthodoxy and such. Um, also, there's another book I was reading. Uh, let me see. It's right over here. Uh, and this, I really like this one. I actually just got this one. This is called Spirit and Sacrament. Spirit and Sacrament by Andrew Wilson. You know, we sometimes want to dichotomize the church and say, you know, sacramentalist versus full gospel, full spirit. And we need the spirit and the sacrament in the same yeah. space. We need high church and low church to be one church. Yeah. You get what I'm saying? We need I that do. all the same yeah. space. Types, symbols are relevant. Ceremony is relevant. Lectio Divina, a spirit-led Lectio Divina is relevant. <laughs> yep. And yep. I believe in the, in the power and the person of the Holy Spirit. You know, he's not a it, it's a he. Yeah. And he's sensitive. Yeah. And we sometimes in the church want to manif want to manufacture movement <laughs> instead of allowing him his place to rule and to lead us yeah. in the movement. And yeah. so that's good. So that's a small book, but you know, good reading. I like Spirit it. Sacrament. Yeah. Yeah. Let's make the Holy Spirit our friend. That's he, right. He's there. He hangs out with us all the time. That's he's right. with us. So have to know him right we have to know him he's a person he's one of the three persons he's not that's right. that's, this that's ethereal right. thing that's right that's right that's right <laughs> that's good well michael this has been so good anything you want to leave uh the listeners with today uh, pray for me pray for our ministries uh pray for city to city we're believing that 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 there's going to be a move of smaller micro churches that are out of the box unorthodox and not traditional. They're going to be the change agent for uh, the Northeast. We really believe that a city to city. I also believe that revival because of COVID has not coming from the center of Jerusalem, but coming from the South Bronx of Nazareth. So what am I saying? From margin space, we're going to see a hand of God move. That's going to change the entire landscape. I really believe that like my name is Michael pray for revival for our world. Pray for the health of the church, but pray for New York City. Yeah. Amen. Let's do it. So thanks, Michael. Really appreciate it. Thank you, brother. The Lord uh, bless you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to see more episodes like this, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron of the show. You can help us produce more episodes so that we could see the body of Christ look more like Jesus. If you become a patron on patreon.com slash shifting culture, uh, you will get early access to episodes. You will get episode guides. You will get bonus shows, hopefully, and more. So go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron.
Also, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, it really helps us out and helps us find new listeners to the show. And just go and share this podcast with your friends, your family, your network, people that you think would enjoy it as well. Thank you again for listening to the show. I hope you have a great week.